Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is Neurostation, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 29. I'm out to sea. Manning is back sponsoring the show this episode, and once again, they have a discount on especially Rust video content that they're producing with Carol Nichols or Golding and Jake Golding called Rust in Motion. It's the same I've talked about in the past, and it's the same we talked about when I interviewed them back in 2018. I've said for years that we need more video content because it's such a huge way people learn. And while that is slowly starting to pick up, Manning's Rust in Motion is one of the first major video courses for Rust that I know of. You can get it for 40% off at deals.manning.com slash new hyphen rustation. There is a link in the show notes, so don't worry if you missed that. And that link actually gives you 40% off of everything at Manning, including their Rust book, Rust in Action, which is currently an early access preview. Thanks so much to Manning for sponsoring the show and for building some great video content with Carol and Jake. Now... Let's talk about Rust's Foreign Function Interface, or FFI, and specifically its C Foreign Function Interface. This is the first of several episodes digging into this topic quite deeply. I ended up splitting this episode into multiple parts, and that was with other parts already planned. So there's a lot here. For further materials on all of this, you'll want to take a look at the Rust programming languages materials, the API and the reference write-ups on Extern, and the Nomicons section on FFI. And speaking of Jake Golding, his Rust FFI Omnibus is also a nice complement to those other resources. I've linked all of these in the show notes. Now, one of the key selling points for Rust is that you don't have to just replace your existing code in other languages, including in C or C++, but you can interoperate freely with them via C APIs. And that works because nearly all modern languages have a C foreign function interface. I'm actually going to talk a fair bit about that in the next teaching episode, about how we extend other languages with Rust and how Rust calls into other languages besides C. For today, though, we're looking specifically at C and by implication C++, because the interop with those other languages, any other languages really, builds on what we have with C and C++. By definition, C has a C API. And C++ libraries often have C APIs or can be expressed as C APIs given a certain amount of finagling. But interacting with a C API means you'll need to write a bunch of Rust bindings for that API. And a binding is a description to the Rust compiler of what the API looks like, a set of declarations of the types of both data structures and functions you're going to work with. And it's important when we declare these that we get them right, because if we don't, stuff will explode on us at runtime. Throughout the rest of this episode, I'm going to talk about a very small bit of C, and the same will be true in future episodes, because in order to work with Rust's FFI tooling, you're going to need to understand at least a little bit of C. To do this kind of thing really well when starting from scratch for interop with other languages, you're actually going to need to understand a lot more C. But in many cases, there are tools out there that mean you don't have to do all the heavy lifting yourself, and that helps a lot. And I'll say a lot more about that in an upcoming Crates You Should Know episode. To write these bindings, though, the first thing we need to talk about is Rust's extern keyword, which lets us define an external item, blocks, functions, types, and crates. 
I have, of course, linked to the references write-up on Extern, and it's worth reading carefully. You may recall that Extern, back in the Rust 2015 edition, was required for declaring all crates outside the current crate. We used the Extern crate syntax. And this told the Rust compiler, hey, this name that I'm telling you about isn't part of this crate. You'll need to look it up somewhere else. Rust no longer needs that for crates in the 2018 edition, as I covered back in the news episodes when I talked about path clarity. But we do still need the extern keyword, because there are functions and types we do still need to tell Rust to look up, quote-unquote, outside. No surprise given today's topic, those are now used for FFI. And there are two forms where we use extern for FFI. The first, which we're focusing on in this episode, is extern blocks. These are what you use when you're calling out into something with a C-A-B-I, and I'll explain that idea in a moment, from Rust. The second is the extern modifier on an item declaration. We'll talk about that in the next teaching episode when we cover how you can use Rust from other languages and call into other languages not C from Rust. In either of those positions, the extern keyword may optionally be followed by an ABI definition. An ABI is an application binary interface. Just like an API, an application programming interface, tells us as programmers how to connect our code with other code, an ABI defines for the compiler how to connect different binaries together. To put that another way, as an API is to source code, an ABI is to machine code. Some examples of the kinds of things, then, that an ABI has to define so that a compiler can wire things up correctly. How do data structures get laid out in memory? How are functions named when they're compiled? What is the processor instruction set you're going to be using? How do system calls work in this particular context, things implemented at the OS kernel level? How is the stack laid out? And there are more details even than those. The point is that those kinds of machine-level details are, of course, incredibly important, and you have to define them somehow. Rust has its own ABI, though it's not something you really ever have to worry about unless you're working on the compiler itself. What's more, Rust's ABI can and does change. However, there are stable ABIs in the world which don't change over time, or only change in backwards compatible ways, and that kind of stability is really useful when you need to interact with code that compiles down to that machine-level format. You specify in Rust which ABI you want to compile against with a string literal after extern. So, for example, to use the standard call stdcall ABI on Windows, you'd write extern, open double quotes, standard call, close double quotes, and then the rest of the block. And there are two special cases you need to know about with extern. First, when you write function foo, or indeed any item declaration at all, that's actually equivalent to writing extern quotes rust unquotes function foo or any other item declaration like that. We're specifying there that this function will have the Rust ABI calling convention for the function foo. And we leave that off because, of course, the default is Rust's ABI. Second, because C's FFI is, as I mentioned a moment ago, far and away the most common, extern is actually short for extern C in quotes, both in blocks and in function declarations. But for clarity, it's conventional to actually include the declaration formally, and if you're using Rust format, it will put it back in for you. 
Now, an extern block is exactly what it sounds like. It is a block which is marked with extern and optionally that ABI string. There are two big things you need to understand about extern blocks. First, all functions defined in an extern block are inherently unsafe. So even though you don't have to, and in fact, you can't write unsafe on those declarations, they're unsafe. Second, for all FFI, you have to wrap the definitions in an extern block. So let's see how you actually write those definitions. How do you define extern functions and types and interact with them? Anytime we're interoperating with something via a C API, we're dealing with functions. There's actually no other reason or way to interact across this kind of boundary. Not just functions, but functions. We'll start with a basic and indeed apparently trivial example, calling out to C to perform addition. The C function signature is int for the return type add, then int A and int B as the arguments. The body there would be what you would expect. It would just return A plus B. On the Rust side, then, we need to provide a declaration, but no function body definition, that matches the C definition so that Rust knows how to call that function. And we do that with an extern block and a function type with no body, almost like a trait method definition. We would write extern, open curlies for the block, and then fn add a of type c underscore int and b of type c underscore int returning the type c underscore int and then a close curly notice the types here c underscore int not i32 now c underscore int is nearly always an i32 that is a 32-bit integer but it is not guaranteed to be anything of the sort by the c standard so we use these types instead and these types are defined in two places, in the standard OS raw crate and in the libc crate. The definitions in those two places are the same. The only reason I know of to prefer getting them from libc is if you're in a, an environment where you don't have standard. For example, on an embedded system using no standard for your compiler settings. Using C underscore int, though, will make it so that if you do happen to be on some system where an int in C is not a 32-bit integer, and you call this with I32 without an explicit cast on the Rust side, you'll get an error. That's very handy. Now, to make this work, you're also going to have to build the C you actually want to call. To do this, you'll either need to invoke GCC or Clang or MSVC directly, or use a build tool outside of Cargo like Make, or you can use Cargo's build file tooling. For today, I'm going to stick with the latter because it's the most interesting for you. In many cases, in ordinary course of building things, of course, you'll be using projects which already have their own build system, and you'll need to do a little work to tell Rust C how to link those items into your app or library, or you'll need to incorporate the build file with that make system. The various references I mentioned at the top of the show all have info in detail how to do that. For our purposes, though, let's stick to cargo build files. If you define a build key pointing to a Rust file in your package config in the cargo.toml file, cargo will compile that and execute that Rust program before building the rest of your program. Conventionally, you can just supply a file named builds.rs in the root of your package, and Cargo will do that same thing automatically without even needing to specify the build key. 
If your build process is sufficiently complicated, though, you can set up a build directory, named whatever you want, of course, make the root a build slash main.rs, or again, whatever you like, and have a full-on Rust program in that directory, which your build key points to, and it can do whatever you need. It's therefore quite powerful. As part of that, you can also specify build dependencies, which will then only be used by the build.rs file. In the show notes for this episode, you will find a sample build.rs file, which is using the cc crate to build a small bit of C code and set it up in the right spot to be statically linked into our program. The CC crate, C compiler, does the hard work of abstracting over the differences between C compilation environments on different platforms, so you don't have to worry about working out those different invocations for GCC or Clang or MSVC or whatever other compiler. And that gets us the basics of running that add function, though I'll have more to say about it in a moment. Now, let's say we had a traditional struct type in C, just a plain old record, and we'll go with the point idea because that's such a common example, and I won't have to spend a lot of time on it as a result. And let's imagine we wanted the ability to translate a given point, to change the coordinates of one point from one location to another. In C, we'd write that something like this. Type def struct point, open curlies, float x semicolon, float y semicolon, close curlies, point. And yes, we named it twice. And then we'd have a function whose return type is void, named translate, which would take point star of name point, and then a float by x and a float by y as its arguments. We're just moving the points by the amount of x and y specified. Writing point star, as in capital P point star, and then lowercase point, means translate here requires a pointer to a given point structure. It doesn't actually make any guarantees that there is a point behind it, only that C will treat the data layout here as consistent with a point. And the net of this declaration is that we are taking in a pointer to a point and can freely do whatever we want to the memory behind that pointer. This is quite unlike what we can do in Safe Rust. We actually could mutate the pointer itself, pointing it to some other location in memory. If we wanted to make it so you couldn't change what that pointer pointed to, we could write point star const point. If we wanted to make it so we couldn't change the contents of the point, but we could change what it pointed to, we'd write const point star point. If we wanted to make it so we couldn't change either of those, we'd write const point star const point. Unfortunately, C would also let us cast away all of that attempted safety and do whatever we wanted with void star as a way of casting. In this case, we are going to do the right thing internally. We're just going to update the values inside that point we've passed in. All of that, again, is just to give you some idea what you're seeing when you look at the show notes. Let's now turn to what those same definitions should look like in Rust. First, that point type. This looks pretty much like what you would expect. It's almost just a normal struct type, pub struct point, with public properties x and y, both of type c underscore float. So far, so normal, other than the fact that we're using c float. However, we also need to add an attribute to this struct, repr c. This on the struct declaration makes it so that Rust lays it out using the CABI's definition of how structs are laid out in memory, rather than however Rust chooses to lay them out. And once we've added that, this definition is the same as the C1, and we're good to go for this interop. Next up, 
Let's talk about the function definition. But here we're going to use raw pointers instead of references. And I skipped over this in my discussion of unsafe code in Rust a few episodes ago because I knew we'd hit it in this episode. Rust has a similar notation to C's in the form of its raw pointers, which are written star const and star mute. In Rust, we'd write this same first argument, point of type star mute point since we're passing a pointer pointing at a thing which will be mutated. And notice an important difference here. When we write star const in C, it means you can't change the pointer. In Rust, it means you can't change the thing the pointer points to. The full function signature then for this in Rust is extern C, open curlies, a public function translate, taking a point, which is a raw mutable pointer to a point structure by X being a C float and by Y being a C float. And it returns nothing because we're just mutating the point. Now you can expose an unsafe interface that just provides direct interop with C functions everywhere in your code. However, doing that would mean that everything which used that code had to uphold the invariance that code requires. And as I discussed back in episode 27, the rustic way of doing things is to wrap our unsafe functions in safe rust functions, which then can check that all the invariants we need are correctly upheld. That way, the vast majority of your code, even your code that relies heavily on external C API code, can just be normal safe Rust. We isolate the unsafety and the complexity and the testing burden to unsafe blocks. So taking that approach with the examples I gave above, we might have the same extern definition for the C functions, but just wrap them in a non-publicly or even public to the crate exposed module, we might call it FFI, and only expose our own safe wrappers. So here we would have a mod FFI where we would define the point type at the parent of that. And so we'd pull that in and we'd pull in the C float and C int types and then have that same extern C block, which has the add definition and the translate definitions in it that we just talked about. Then we would have an actually public or public to the crate definition of a function for add, which would deal with I32s. And maybe it would return an option of I32 instead because we have to deal with overflow. Here we might say some comparison, some logic to check if we're going to end up overflowing. And if we are, return none. Otherwise, run the unsafe block and return some of the result of our FFI add function on A and B. In the case of addition, this might seem silly. In fact, it probably seems about as silly as calling out to see for addition in the first place is. But it turns out that even addition is not trivially safe to do across an FFI boundary. The behavior of overflow for signed integers is not defined for C. In Rust, it is defined by RFC number 560. In modes where debug assertions are enabled, an overflow will cause a panic. In modes where they're not, that is release mode, Rust wraps them by two's complement. And I've linked to that in the show notes so you can look it up. The point, the net of that, is that even something this simple can actually have unexpected results when we're calling across an FFI boundary. Now, this is a silly example. But besides showing how you can provide a safe wrapper for a case where C's implementation differences might actually matter to you, this also serves as a reminder for us, I hope, that C's implementation differences are likely to matter in a lot more places than we might initially think. Now, in terms of providing a safe wrapper for our translate function, we don't actually need to do anything except call it in an unsafe block because we don't have any particular constraints or invariants we have to uphold other than that we have a 
non-null pointer to pass in. And pointers, references, are always non-null if they're coming from, say, Rust. Wrapping it up this way, though, still makes it so that our consumers don't have to deal with the unsafety. And here in the code samples, if you look in the show notes, I've chosen to add explicit casts as a way of communicating to anyone reading the code what we're doing, but none of the arguments we're dealing with actually requires those explicit casts. The last thing I'll say in this episode is that our careful use of safe Rust interfaces here does not mean that something can't still go wrong through our use of unsafe code. The C itself could do something horrible here. As I mentioned earlier, it could just cast that pointer to a point to void star, point it at other junk memory, call free on it. It could do all sorts of horrible things. And... We have to remember that lots of things can go wrong in C or in other languages we're talking to through their C APIs that Rust simply by definition does not have control over. When we provide a safe interface like this, we are not saying anything at all about the actual behavior of the C API we're calling into. The only thing we're saying is that we're providing data that satisfies the invariance that that API requires. Oh, now, that has gotten us through the basics of CFFI and Rust, but there's a lot more to say. So in the next teaching episode, we'll cover dealing with enums and types like strings and vectors and arrays and slices. We'll talk about ownership issues, and we'll talk about union types. After that, we'll dive into talking about how you can use Rust from other programming languages. And somewhere along the way, I'll also have a Crates You Should Know episode talking about bind gen. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors included Anthony Deschamps, Ryan Osiel, Olaf Fadei, Soren Bremer-Schmidt, Rob Chuk, John Rudnick, Chip, Brian McAllister, Jerome Froelich, Andrew Dirksen, Nick Stevens, Daniel Mason, Daniel Collin, Joseph Schrag, Jacob Denar, Embark Studios, Peter Tillemans, Jonathan Knapp, Adam Green, Michael McDonald, Matt Rudder, Graham Willidall, Benjamin Manns, Jeff May, Martin Hushober, Olushe Shonaya, Scott Muller, Nathan Scully, Ben Amesfabode, Evan Stahl, Arun Kolshreshtha, Rafe Levine, Ramon Buckland, Nick Gidio, Daniel Bornkessel, James Higgins II, Dan Abrams, Paul Naranja, David Carroll, Brian Stitt, Nicholas Pochet, Johan Anderson, Jason Bowen, Alexander Payne, and Zach Peters. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash newrustation or via other services listed on the show website, newrustation.com. You'll also find show notes there, including links to the things I talk about, scripts, code samples, and many interview transcripts. Notes for this episode are at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash E029. Please do tell others about the show if you like it, whether you do that in person, whether you recommend it in a podcast directory, or whether you share it about in whatever media online. You can get in touch with me at Chris Kreitcher or at Neurostation on Twitter or by sending me an email at hello at Neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding. <laughs>